Welcome to the Show Me Institute podcast. I'm Zach Lawhorn from Show Me Opportunity, and I'm joined by Susan Pendergrass, David Stokes, and Patrick Ishmael from the Show Me Institute. David, the last couple of weeks you've ended the podcast talking about all the TIF Commission meetings and the goings-on of St. Louis County. What's the update? Well, there's a lot of interesting stuff happening at the municipal level in St. Louis County right now. And we'll start with TIF because tonight is the public hearing for the Crestwood Mall TIF proposal, uh, where they're asking for $17 million in subsidies, about $13.5 a, as a tax increment financing package, and about $3.5 million in an extra sales tax for a new Deerberg's on Watson Road in the old location of the, the torn down Crestwood Mall. Uh, obviously, it's, I think it's a, a terrible use of tax dollars. I have absolutely nothing against Deerberg's. It's a fine company, but I fail to see why. In This part of Crestwood is the opposite of a food desert. I mean, you would, I would call it a food cornucopia. They have lots of grocery stores, including several right there by the Crestwood Mall site. So I see no reason. I have. I see every reason why Deerberg's might want to go in and compete. I see no reason why they they deserve seventeen million dollars in taxpayer money to help them do so. Uh, as part of the same development, they're doing a, a new housing subdivision, and with that housing subdivision, they're not asking for any subsidies. So if they can do part of the development without subsidies, I would think they could do the whole de- development without subsidies, and I hope that the TIF Commission turns them down tonight. And we will be participating in the TIF Commission hearing tonight via Zoom, uh, sharing, sharing those ideas with the TIF Commission. And this yep. is the second time they've tried to develop well, it's been, it's been sitting vacant now for quite some time. They passed a TIF in 2016 for the area, a different style project, and that was passed, but uh, that project didn't move forward for unrelated reasons. So hopefully they will not pass a TIF. So clearly it, it's not the magic of a TIF that m- makes it get developed because they passed a TIF and nothing happened. So, And with all due respect to Deerberg's, it's a, it's a lovely store, but do they think that they should get paid for sort of like blessing Crestwood with the Deerberg's presence or you know what's their rationale about behind like you have to entice us to come here as a privately run corporation well I think <clears throat> I think honestly it's just that the way it works now is every development asks for a tax subsidy you gotta every make the com- ask. <laughs> you gotta make the ask and 99% of the time they get it they almost always well, get it, so why why, why not? not ask? The, the Schnooks there is a fairly old one. I mean, by that, I think it's a great store, but it predates tax subsidies. So it, it was built in the late 60s or 70s. You know, they, they didn't get a subsidy to build that Schnooks, and the Deerberg shouldn't have one shouldn't have one either. So what we need to do is like tough love and wean these corporations off this idea of like, just to get you to come, we're going to give you a a tax subsidy. Right. It's not like Crestwood, Missouri has sort of these gigantic taxes that are no business can succeed in the high tax environment of Crestwood, Missouri. I mean, they can succeed if they want to get in there and and compete, but they're going to ask for the subsidy because that's that's just what you what you do. And luckily, the St. Louis County TIF Commission has at least had a uh, been one of the few bodies in the state in the state to have some discipline on these questions mm-hmm. in recent years, and hopefully they'll turn it down. Hopefully they'll turn it down tonight. Yeah, are you optimistic about that? <laughs> the fact that they passed it in 2016 <laughs> would make me not quite so optimistic tonight. But but you got it. You know they. I was very happy, obviously, when a year and a half ago the St. Louis County TIF Commission rejected the Maryland Heights TIF. 
when they asked for 150 million, 150 million dollars in subsidies for a giant floodplain development yeah. there, and the the county TIF commission turned them down. So that gives me hope. Something else you wrote about this week, and Patrick, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring you in as our boots on the ground in Kansas City. David wrote about the resurgence of the Hotel Bravo project. Do you think that there's a a need in Kansas City for another downtown luxury hotel? No, I mean I don't think so. I mean I, obviously I haven't done a, a market research report uh, on uh, what what Kansas City needs. Like, but we you know keep in mind that we just built a a luxury hotel in downtown Kansas City. Uh, that I think was completed just before the pandemic, and it's still working on trying to fill all those rooms. So the idea that we need to pick up and, and specifically subsidize, it's one thing to have a hotel company come in and say, I think that Kansas City needs another hotel in this area. No, that's that's none of my business at that point. But as soon as you start bringing public subsidies into uh, the picture, and that's what's happening here, um, there does have to be a very close analysis of exactly whether those subsidies are necessary and whether that service or that particular operation is needed. And it's hard to justify at this particular point that uh, Hotel Bravo or, or any other sort of uh, hotel operation uh, really needs a tax subsidy, especially at this point in that part of the city. Uh, and my, my, my view is that, you know, uh, you, you can build it yourself, but if you're coming to taxpayers, uh, you know, there's a, a very short list of times where tax subsidies are appropriate and a, a five-star hotel is not one of those times. Even, even, even the downtown, the Kansas City tourist agency, Visit KC, has come out against new subsidies for additional hotels in downtown Kansas City because they know that they, I'm just quoting them here, this is my opinion, the market is somewhat saturated right now. And while they recognize they can't, tell, they can't prevent a new hotel from coming, they can re- oppose tax subsidies for that new hotel. So you do have people in the market in Kansas City opposing these types of subsidies. So it's just, it's sort of crazy right now that they want to do it. And our hope is that the uh, Kansas City Council says November Oscar to Hotel Bravo. It does sound like a military operation. A little bit, right? It makes me think of like sort of tipping. Like tipping is so expected that it's no longer sort of an optional thing that you would tip. And when I go somewhere and I take something out of like a refrigerated case and I carry it over to pay for it, then they send me a, they give me a slip that asks for a tip on it. I'm thinking, you didn't literally do anything to earn a tip. So it sort of feels like that. Like it's an expected thing that will give you a tax break to open here. But in some cases, it's beyond the pale. Well, in the Central West End, they've found, you know, groups have done studies of this. And tax breaks are so common in wealthy places like the Central West End. And they're so completely unneeded that all they do is get capitalized into the price of the building. Sure, and sure. now a building now sells for say 10% more than it otherwise would have because it's just so assumed that you're going to get a 10 to 15% tax break on it that they just capitalize that tax break into the price of the building. So you literally at this point do nothing for public services. So you literally are taking money out of the public coffers and into the whoever's selling the building. Absolutely. Any other updates that we need to know about? Well, there's a very interesting thing happening in Webster Groves uh, that I need, I'm going to study a lot more in the next few days here and start writing about. So they have, they're having a referendum on the August ballot. I think it's August 4th, but uh, right around that time, where they passed in Webster Groves a rezoning allowing for greater ability to build 
duplexes in parts of in parts of Webster Groves in certain zoning in certain residentially zoned parts of Webster Groves, and there's been a lot of opposition to that, and they actually got signatures to put it on the ballot to to keep the restrictions against duplexes and other types of housing options in in parts of Webster Groves. So obviously, uh, as a free market guy, I think I have nothing against duplexes, uh, and I would I would support the liberalization of zoning laws around the state, if I can take Webster Groves out of it right now, to allow for greater housing options. I think, however, that the fact that in prior years, Webster Groves has done things such as floating the idea of of telling landlords that they can't refuse Section 8 vouchers if they don't if they don't want to take Section 8. Webster Groves telling people that they have to take those things. I don't think that was passed into law, but it was floated not long ago. So I think that has some Webster Groves citizens concerned that these rezoning changes are a, a you know, camel's nose under the tent to really radically change the housing structure of Webster Groves and do things like require more public housing and require landlords to take Section 8 vouchers if they if they don't want to. And while I do support additional things such as allowances for more duplexes, I certainly don't support mandating that a, a landlord take a Section 8 voucher if they don't want to. The idea that you would require somebody to participate in a welfare program if they don't wish to participate in it seems absurd to me. Sure. All right. Well, we need to move on. Patrick, you were in Jefferson City on Tuesday. What were you doing there? Well, uh, we've talked a little bit about this bill before, but HB 271 uh, was signed into law this week. Uh, we were invited to participate in the signing ceremony and we were delighted to be there. And it was a nice hot day uh, out uh, on the backside of the Capitol, uh, but it was a lot of really great policy that became law. And HB 271 was originally a bill that uh, dealt with a subject that we care a lot about and we've pushed for a long time and it's this idea of publishing local government checkbooks. Uh, HB 271 uh, creates a voluntary database at this point uh, that allows for counties and cities to participate and publish their uh, their spending information. Our hope is that over the course of the next couple of years that'll be updated to mandating and requiring that because you know local government when they take your money through taxation they're doing it through force and the least that they they can do is tell the public how they're spending it. And so HB 271, the original bill uh, dealing with the checkbook uh, project, really, uh, uh, is a great step in that direction. Uh, and there are a couple more steps to take, but we're, we're really thankful that uh, John Weeman, uh, pr- uh, the pr- uh, House uh, Speaker Pro Tem in the House, he carried this, he pushed it through, he got it done, and kudos to him and to everyone that was able to get the bill done. But of course, HB 271, included a lot of additional legislation too because you know our, our listeners may know this but the legislature tends to wait to the last minute uh to to pass its legislation so they will amend other bills onto bills that are actually making it and this ended up being a local government uh omnibus bill and so it ended up including things like uh, restrictions on uh, what local governments can do and how long they can maintain lockdown orders during a pandemic which we've talked about before and and, uh, talked about our concerns about before as well. Uh, It includes a ban on vaccine passports uh, on public transportation and and public services, which is good. Um, And it has a lot of other stuff in in it that deals with uh, the disposition of 
county property or the management of county property stuff that we we didn't really focus on but by and large you know sometimes what will happen is that you'll have bills that are good and then with the amendments they get worse and worse and worse and then you might as well not have passed it at all but hb 271 ended up uh remaining in good shape remaining good policy uh and we not only got something that we had been really pushing for for the last two or three years uh, but we also ended up seeing some other good policies that protect the individual rights of Missourians, uh, pandemic or not. And, uh, you know, overall, I think this was a successful legislative session. And a lot of the reason I think that is because bills like HB 271 actually got across the finish line. So kudos to the legislature, kudos to uh, the governor for getting it done. Uh, and uh, hopefully this is the start of uh, a pattern of great reforms going through the Missouri legislature. You said that it was a voluntary database. Do we have any idea on the level of participation across the state on municipalities that are going to voluntarily contribute to this database? That's a great question. And I think that you can probably take our project and uh, if you were to you know, kind of say, well, our participation rate is probably going to be about the baseline of what we'll see statewide. You'll probably see, well, all counties will, will almost certainly end up participating in it. Uh, they already produce information like that. And we end up getting pretty much every county in the state when we requested uh, their spending information. If you're talking about cities, you're probably talking about maybe half of the cities. And for a, a, a state that has about a thousand, you know, cities of various sizes in it, you know, that's about 500 cities. So you know, the the proof will be in the pudding. We'll find out uh, who wants to participate when uh, the, the checkbook actually goes live. Uh, but if you look at uh, the treasurer's office, which already has uh, a show me checkbook uh, portal, they, they actually kind of have a version of this already. Um, they are slowly building up uh, county uh, information first, which makes total sense. Uh, but I think the hardest ones are cities because cities are sometimes hard to contact. And sometimes I think a lot of cities uh, they're kind of like high schools you know they're they're small enough where everybody knows each other and because everybody knows each other they're reticent to actually share information actively so you know if you're talking about it, cities between three and ten thousand people those are probably the cities that are the toughest to get these checkbooks from but if you're talking about big cities like kansas city or st louis it would be pretty easy springfield should be easy uh, and even hyper small cities and towns Usually they're, they've been pretty inclined. So I would say probably about half of the cities will participate and probably all of the counties. Um, but, uh, you know, we'll see. We'll see over the next couple of years. All right. Moving on to our final topic, a new segment on the podcast, and that's uh, checking in with Dr. Dre. Susan, <laughs> Let's do it weekly. Yeah, weekly. Uh, what's the doctor up to this week? Well, here's the thing. Dr. Dre and, and Jimmy <coughs> Iovine, two gigantic names in the music producing business, announced this week that they're going to open a public school in Los Angeles, which I think is great. LeBron, LeBron James opened a public school in Cleveland, which I think is great. Sean Combs, P. Diddy has a school. Fantastic. I think that's great. But, um, you know, we did a podcast a couple days ago with um, somebody from Education Reform, Mac, Dr. Mackie Raymond from Stanford. And if one thing has happened this past year, we have, I think, realized that we could broaden the definition of what is a public school Who's allowed to have a public school? Who's allowed to get public funding for a public school? And and what does it look like going forward? And so I think it's great that the public school, you know, heavy air quotes, establishment is willing to let these famous people with lots of money open a public school. But what about everyone else is my question, right? So 
1988, the head of the teachers union, Al Shanker, made a speech where he said, teachers should be able to open their own public schools if they have a great idea. Kids can't be forced to go there. You'd have to choose it, and they can't do it forever, maybe three years. And he sort of launched this idea of charter schools. And, you know, if you've got a great idea, you ought to be able to, uh, with not too much bureaucracy, try it. And if you can convince kids to attend or families to participate, you ought to be able to try that. And that's essentially what Dr. Dre and Jimmy Iovine are doing. They're not I don't know what they know about public education other than they've got a lot of money and they want to support a particular population of highly disadvantaged students. So I completely support it. But it's like, why aren't we doing that across the board? Why aren't we letting teachers in rural Missouri with great ideas start schools? Why do we have to circle the wagons? And, and even worse than that, in one of our lowest performing districts in the state, the Normandy Schools Cooperative, which has been not even accredited for a very long time and has single digit rates of proficiency, a charter school for the first time is slated to open there a year from this fall and they are just dead set against it dead set against letting anything other than the public school system have any of their public school students and i would think in a community like that they would welcome this new idea they would welcome it's going to be a pretty cool school i've seen the application it's going to work uh, community leadership into the curriculum quite a bit and it's going to give the students who leave there the opportunity to become community leaders i think it's great but they want to close the barn doors, not let the kids out, not let uh, big new ideas come in unless they come from within the system. And that's what I think the Dr. Dre, Jimmy Iovine thing is, is like cool people working within the system and they let them do it. But absolute, complete um, unwillingness to let anyone from outside the system come in and start these types of things. So whereas I think it's super cool, I probably would like to go there. I think it would be great. And the this, this students are going to learn about music production, which I think is great. Uh, I just wonder why those are the only people who get to try things and that uh, in Missouri especially, we are so resistant to outside people and outside ideas coming into our public school system. Well, you said Missouri specifically. In Missouri, what obstacles are in the way of a teacher trying to start their own public school so theoretically you can open a charter school anywhere in the state i don't think that that's very widely accepted but you can open a charter school anywhere in the state the only caveat is that the charter school sponsor has to be the local public school district unless you're in a super low performing district which right now would be kansas city st louis and normandy but um you can open one anywhere you just have to have the public school district be the sponsor of it and nationally about half of the seven thousand charter schools that exist are sponsored by local school boards. And it's not uncommon at all. Outside Missouri, it's very common. There are about a thousand school districts that sponsor charter schools. And a lot of school districts have seen this as an opportunity to let especially a high-performing charter school operator come in and open, say, a language immersion school or uh, a high-performing network school like um, KIPP is one that most people around here know. But, you know, say Hazelwood or uh, Columbia or any other district in the state could, especially districts with declining enrollment and maybe an empty school building, could get a high-performing charter school operator to come in and get parents excited again. And the, no one has to go to it. Only the parents who want to send their children would go to it. Maybe they don't get any kids enrolled and then they don't get a charter. But generally what happens is there's always, you know, there tends to be a group of parents that are super excited about it because not every kid is perfectly served by the school that they're assigned to based on their address so to me i think we've said this maybe even on a podcast uh, recently but 
as soon as we get just a couple of school districts in Missouri to realize what a great thing this could be to attract families to their school district, uh, I'm hoping that, you know, it'll start to catch on. It certainly happens at other places. So Sean Combs School is a charter school. Pitbull, the rapper, has... um, a network of high-performing charter schools in Miami, Florida. You know, so a lot of, I mean, it's equally done in the charter school sector as in the non-charter school sector. But Missouri is just, so far, has been very, very resistant to the idea. And charter schools are, uh, the the sector is turning 30. I mean, it was founded in 93 in Minnesota. It's been a really long time. It must be 91 in Minnesota. And uh, we're still resisting the idea of it. So um, a lot of small communities, uh, say in Idaho, there's some one-room schoolhouse charter schools. Kansas, there's some agricultural charter schools. There's high-performing rural charter schools in Arkansas. I just think we have to sort of like break through whatever you call it, the glass ceiling or something in Missouri and get um, the rest of the state to, to realize what an opportunity there is there. I mean, there will be a waiting list for Dr. Dre and Jimmy Iovine's school. I think there already is, right? There's probably a waiting list a mile long for LeBron James School. So, I don't know. Why not Why not take advantage of it, especially now? And that's, I think, an important distinction to make that it's a public school, that it's not yeah. It's not a private school that you no. apply for and either get accepted or rejected. It's They they have to take kids until they, they can't find any teeth kid. for them anymore, right? right? Any kid. First come, first serve. Yep. And then lottery, no matter what. And... Yeah, these big names do attract a lot of families. Missouri could do something similar. But uh, I just think there's a lot of opportunities for some really high-quality, agriculturally-focused charter schools in Missouri. But we are leaving it as an untapped um, resource right now. And we have probably so many super smart, entrepreneurial, innovative teachers across the state. And this is the one thing they could do if they are really feeling the entrepreneurial spirit is they could start a school. That's KIPP schools, which many people have heard of, KIPP charter schools. There's literally hundreds of them. They have tens of thousands of alumni. was started by two uh, teachers in Houston, Texas. And two two guys right out of college, they were teaching in a low-performing, uh, highly disadvantaged public school. And they were like, you know, I think we could do a better job here and they started the knowledge is power program charter school and it's exploded obviously it's huge now but it started by teachers who are in the classroom thinking the bureaucracy and the way things are done and all the rules you know if you could blow that stuff out we could probably have a great school here there's a really cool school in st louis called kairos it's only been open a couple of years kairos academy it's middle school self-directed learning kids each have like a sort of like a, a college guidance counselor Uh, advisor and they have their own individual program of learning they don't necessarily learn in the classroom space they might learn in other spaces in the building and it's it's i think it's a great idea i just think we need to really uh capture all of this great all of these great ideas give people a limited amount of time and let them you know expand what the portfolio of schools we offer to parents without making parents sell their houses and buy a new house or get out of a lease and go get in another lease david st louis has a unique um high school atmosphere very important in st louis where you went to high school that's the first question people ask Mm. um where do you think celebrity started backed high school would fit in the uh the ecosystem of st louis high schools well i think john ham is a pretty loyal john burroughs former teacher so i don't think he would start a new school to compete with john burroughs i think i think he would just send people to john burroughs uh (coughs) 
What about? Excuse me. What about? Um, don't 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 jump on me, please. Adam Wainwright. Is that right? Yeah, yeah you got it. I, I think a, a baseball academy. No, there's would, a there's be, a there's a network of schools called Slam, which are sports marketing sports marketing charter schools. Andy Cohen is a yeah, big, big St. Louis celebrity, but I think he's a pretty lo- Andy Cohen's a pretty loyal Clayton High School guy too. So what about Jack so Dorsey? I it would be it would be tough for some of these celebrities to break out of their own uh, dedication to their own high schools to establish something to to compete with it. I could I couldn't imagine establishing something to compete with. St. Louis University High School, or you just <laughs> of course tell, you pe- tell people to go to St. Louis University High School. Although I'm sending my own son to to CBC this this fall. So, but what if they want a music production high school? I That's that, not either SLU High or CBC. Who's a who's a fa- who's the most who's the current music celebrity from from St. Louis here to oh not to from start St. Louis, but I'm saying that's Nelly. Mm-hmm. Nelly, yeah, Nelly sure. could start a, a music production high school. Did, sure. Didn't he start? Didn't he look into doing something like that? I think Nelly is considering something like that. I think you're right. I think I did. It hear might not that. be a school. It might mm-hmm. be like a training. Yeah, it might be right. more of a that's right. more of a job training program. But couldn't Jack Dorsey start a STEM high school? He founded uh, Twitter. I mean, why not? I don't know. That would be wonderful. I think there's plenty of opportunity, and I do think, you know, I'm not sure that this is the best way to start schools. I would prefer to allow similar things happen from people with uh, less celebrity name and money, but great ideas. And I think, you know, I've had people walk up to me before. I've worked in this space a long time just and say, I really want to start a school. I want to start personalized learning or project-based learning. I want it to be for only girls from disadvantaged backgrounds. Like, I want it to be about the environment for K-2. to I just have people sometimes, you know, regularly tell me about the school that they've dreamed up in their minds. And in a lot of places, they can bring that to fruition because they can start a charter school, they can find a sponsor or get the school district to sponsor it, and they can make it happen. In Missouri, you could theoretically make that happen in St. Louis, Kansas City, and um, and Normandy. But what, again, about Columbia and, and Jefferson City and Springfield and Joplin and Cape Girardeau? Like, if you happen to be in that same situation in one of those locations, you are stymied right now, and it just baffles me. All right. What are you guys looking uh, at over the next week? Patrick, let's start with you. Yeah. So uh, this week uh, we published a blog post that talked a little bit about a topic that we're starting to embark on and talk about publicly called critical race theory. And for listeners that are unfamiliar with it, critical race theory basically posits that uh, American institutions are systemically racist or inherently racist. And the question that's kind of popping up is, well, what it's one thing to have a discussion about this, you know, among uh, adults, but what is what is its role in educating kids? Like, is that something that we're going to be teaching Missouri children uh, that, you know, the government is racist, it's systemically racist? And, and not only that, there are a lot of other elements that go into uh, critical race theory, including uh, the idea that, you know, s- some people are inherently racist. What does what does that really mean to us? And so we talked a little bit about that earlier this week, and uh, over the course of the next few weeks, we actually sent out some Sunshine Law requests to schools across the state to, to just ask, are you teaching this curriculum? Do you have any uh, uh, grants that have been uh, issued to teachers to promote or develop a curriculum like this? And does your school have a position on it? Because I think that at a bare minimum, uh, I think schools do need to be transparent about what their uh, curriculum is to begin with and whether they're teaching this content because I do think that that 
parents are going to care about that. And, uh, you know, we were talking about transparency and checkbooks at the local level. I think transparency in curriculum uh, and, and particularly for this particular subject is really important. Uh, and so uh, in the next week or two, we have the police going by right now. Uh, in the next week or two, we're going to continue that work, uh, and uh, over time, we'll be releasing what we find, and uh, you know, hopefully, it'll be uh, mostly good news. Where uh, uh, one, uh, schools are responding promptly and are open about this, and two, you know, that generally speaking, that they are intending on having productive conversations about really sensitive topics uh, in in ways that they're already doing and had been doing for decades. Uh, we are just certainly curious whether or not, and to what extent. Uh, critical race theory is even entering the classroom. We'll find out soon. Susan, what do you got coming up? I'm waiting to see if the governor is going to sign our first education savings account bill. I understand it's been sitting on his desk for some time. I don't know exactly how crowded his schedule is, but waiting to see if and when he's going to sign that bill and so that the program can launch. And David? Looking to focus and, and talk about uh, some in, some issues of public safety agency contracting and merger proposals in, in St. Louis County, a small one where the city of Warson Woods is talking with the neighboring city of Glendale about contracting with Glendale for, to do police services for Warson Woods. I think that'd be a terrific move to uh, maintain or improve public safety levels in those those two suburbs and, and save some tax money. And on the counter end, the Post-Dispatch a week ago had a big article on proposals from the Firemen's Union in St. Louis County to eliminate municipal fire departments or a substantial number of them in favor of independently elected fire districts. And I can't stress enough how that would just be a horrible, horrible move in in every way possible as they seek to take end all these municipal fire departments that answer to mayors and city councils who have to run their fire department as part of a whole city operation and turn it over to little-known, obscurely-run fire districts that the unions have historically had a much easier time of taking control over for the for the benefit of, of the firemen's union. All right. Stay up to date on all that and more at showmeinsuit.org. David, Susan, Patrick, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.